Father God, I thank you um, for this morning. Thank you for our kids upstairs just having a blast learning about Jesus. And that's the way it should be. And Lord God, maybe downstairs here this morning, we may not be going to have a blast, but uh, we may have our hearts challenged and we may definitely find some areas where we need to grow in you this morning. And that is also exciting too. And I just pray that this morning that that would be the way we understand it. That it is delightful, it is good, though it is hard to grow up in our relationship with you. Lord, I thank you for the Israelites. I thank you for Moses, for Aaron. I thank you for your powerful presence in this text. Lord, I pray we would learn from the story that is here and change our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you need a Bible this morning, Glenn's got a Bible for you. Love to have you reading along with us. We're going to be in Exodus 32. Before we read from the text and can dive in, I want to like to share a story with you. Craig and Jessica met in their 20s through a common friend. They dated for a couple years and were married. Jessica had grown up her Jessica had grown up her whole life in the church. Her parents had moved around some, but always went and looked for the same style of church to go wherever they lived. She found the structure familiar and comfortable and created a bit of bias in her life that there was truly only one way to do church. Craig, on the other hand, did not grow up in the church at all. His dad was a huge sports fan and could rattle off sports facts on command from any sport that you could name. His mom was a big lover of the arts, and she would often drag father and son to the local theater productions and art exhibits. Craig was to grow up and be a true Renaissance man. Through the education and athletics, Craig would become a valuable member of society. Jessica came to faith as a young child in Sunday school, and Craig came to faith in his mid-20s at college through a campus crusade event. Jessica was one of five children, and Craig was the only child. Early on in their marriage, they were very committed to attending church on Sunday and would love to serve and help in the children's departments. However, Craig received a promotion, a long overdue promotion at work, and they agreed, now with the new finances, that it would be a good time to start a family. Well, the promotion meant more responsibilities at work, and a new baby at home meant late nights. Craig and Jessica were exhausted. They spent more time and more time apart, and it seemed that the only days that they had at home were on Sundays. Church attendance became burdensome, and they felt their family time was too important. Jessica desired to have a large family like she had growing up, and Craig often wondered what it would be like to have a brother or a sister. So they had two more children, and they agreed that three children was a good number to stop at. Craig and Jessica loved their kids. Their family was their world. The oldest boy in the fall <clears throat> played football, and in the basketball 
in the winter and soccer in the spring. And in the summer, he was on a club team for soccer and had basketball clinics. On top of the sports, he played the piano and took voice lessons. Their eldest daughter was a gifted runner. She ran cross country in the fall and played basketball in the winter and track in the spring. In the summer, she always was traveling across the state to one race or another and sometimes even traveled out of state. She also played the violin and took voice lessons as well. The youngest boy, he was a bit of a struggle. He didn't want to play sports or musical instruments at all and would fight them over it. This lack of interest made it difficult for Craig and Jessica to relate to him. He would rather grab a pencil and sketch whatever he saw. But lately, the sketches were filled with anger and heartbreaking images. The oldest was 15 when it happened. Craig and Jessica's world seemed to come apart. The oldest had been struggling with injuries in football and trying to get as big as he wanted to to play the game. Jessica was in his room grabbing his dirty laundry when she accidentally kicked a bag and heard the sound of small glass bottles hitting together. She opened up the bag to discover needles, pills, and small glass bottles with fluid in them. After an internet search, to her horror, she discovered that he was taking amphetamines and steroids. About the same time, Craig got a call from the school. Their oldest daughter had been throwing up blood. He ran out of work, rushed to the school, took her to the ER. The doctors would later inform him that she was forcing herself to throw up. The youngest at this time had distanced himself so much that they hardly ever saw him. He would come home often smelling of smoke and even sometimes marijuana. He stopped drawing altogether. When Craig came home after the hospital visit, he sat down with Jessica, and together they shared their discoveries and they wept. How did this happen? They had gone to church on occasion they had sent their kids to Christian camps. All of their kids had made decisions for the Lord. How did this happen? I'm sure Moses probably had a similar reaction when God tells him in verse 7 what the people were doing in his absence. God had delivered the people of Israel out of slavery. Removed them from oppression where the slave masters killed their children, beat them to death, robbed them of food and sustenance. He delivered them in mighty and miraculous ways through the plagues. He, he took them through the Red Sea, parting the Red Sea, and watched the nation of Israel walk through on dry ground. And then the nation of Israel, once completely on the other side, looked back and watched their enemies, the Egyptians, drowned in the water as God closed up the waves. How could this happen? God had shown his power and his might by making the waters that were once bitter sweet. How could this happen when God 
provided manna and birds from heaven to ha- to, for them to eat and to them to daily dine on. How could this happen when God provides water from a rock? How could this happen when Moses is gone for a short period, 40 days and nights with the Lord, that they turn from following God and they make a graven image for themselves, violating the first two commandments. You shall make, have no other God before me and you shall fashion no God in my image. How could they do this? How could this happen? We have some interesting characters in this story. Story are important to understand when you study them. You've got the people of Israel. You've got Aaron. You've got Moses. And you've got God. And before you think of anything else, God is the hero of this story. So let's begin with God as the hero of this story. God had powerfully, wonderfully delivered the people of Israel. And what has he asked in return? Their worship, their service. And what does he get? When the people of God, you got to understand Moses' role. Moses was the prophet through which when God spoke, he spoke to Moses and Moses spoke to the people. And with Moses' presence there, the people tended for the most part to obey God and fall after what God is calling them to do. But when Moses is not present, when he's not visible in front of them, their hearts are revealed. As they spend time away from the one who is representing God to them, they pursue where their hearts are naturally inclined to go towards We read in this first portion here that the people come to Aaron and they ask Aaron to make a God that can go before them. This is a powerful statement because when you think about how the Israelites were led in the wilderness, God, the very presence of God went before them in a cloud of a day, but cloud by day during the day and a cloud of fire at night. Who was the one that led The people of Israel, it was God. And now the people of Israel are crying out for something else to lead them. Something that they can control. Something that they can manipulate. They don't want God to lead them anymore. So Aaron obliges. He asks for the earrings from their interesting statement. From their wives. From the women. From the men. Or excuse me, the boys. And from the girls. And he asks them to be brought to him. And he takes them. And don't miss this statement in verse 4. And he received the gold from their hand. And if you believe in underlining your Bibles, this is a powerful statement. And fashioned it. He fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. This is what we would call in light of last week's sermon. If you're a big fan of the arts and if you believe that art is a powerful part of worship, I encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon. We talked a lot about the arts and how God does through the arts. This is artistry gone wrong. For Aaron, who looks to be here a skilled artisan, instead of making something that glorifies and worships the one true God, like the articles that were going to be used in the tabernacle, he now fashions something, he makes something, he sculpts something that will be worshipped instead of God. And if that wasn't bad enough... What does he encourage them to do? So then he builds an altar. And so Aaron builds this altar before this lamb. And Aaron is supposed to be the guy that was to remind the people of what God had said. He was supposed to be the priest that led them, that guided them. 
But instead, here he was, this one that was encouraging them and their idolatry. And he builds an altar so that they can work, uh, so that they can sacrifice on this altar and worship this false idol. And not only does he do that, then he says here in verse 6, and they rose up early the next day and, bur- and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and, drove, and drink and rose up to play. So, and in verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And I don't want you to miss that. Now Aaron's going to combine this false idol with the worship of one true God, and now he's going to make God this pluralistic thing to worship in any way you want to worship. Just worship the God that you like. This is exactly contrary to the laws that have been given them to guide them and lead them in light of worship. They're only to worship the one true God. How did this happen? How did Aaron go from being the priest that would represent the people before God to being the one that would lead them into idolatry? Craig and Jessica were at a loss after this discovery. They had no idea what they were supposed to do in this situation. It felt like their world had ended. So they went back to what they knew. Jessica encouraged Craig, let's go talk to our pastor. And so they went and they talked to their pastor. And the pastor sat down with them. And with great wisdom and discernment, the pastor began to instruct them and talk to them and say, they, these kids just didn't arrive at this point on their own. Your idols have influenced their idols. Jessica and Craig began to weep. They were supposed to be the ones to teach their children about God. To help their children not be idolatrous. And here they were, the idols that they were raised with that they had not confronted in their own life, they now are instructing to their children. And in a sense, like Aaron, instead of proclaiming God to their children, they proclaimed these idols to them instead and taught their kids that you can be a success in life with good education, good morals and values, and without God. Not intentionally, but unintentionally. I think churches are guilty of this well. I think think churches can teach people, come to the Sunday morning gatherings, come and give in in the coffers. You can come and do these things and serve the church body and do all of these wonderful things and you will be a good person. And 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 sometimes in our efforts to do, 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 do with the church body, we do not encourage people in their relationship with God and to destroy idols. And as we do not talk about them, 
You see, some of the idols that Jessica and Craig brought into this marriage, Jessica was, was raised in the church, going to church every time the door was open, and she began to idolize a certain way and style in which church is done. And in Jessica's life, an idol was, if church isn't done this way, then guess what? I shouldn't have to go. And Jessica's life, as she grew up as a child amongst many kids, she idolized the relationship with the other kids, and she idolized that family unit, and she watched her parents set up that standard of family is so super important, and Jessica just took it up one more notch and said, you know what, we can forsake the gathering together of the saints because family is more important than this, and brought the idolatry of family into the marriage. Craig grew up with a different perspective. Education was God. Sports was God. These things, and Craig, Craig grew up loving these things, and your job. His dad was a hard worker, and he saw his dad provide for his family. And so when Craig got this, this promotion, he said, well, I've got to serve my job so that I can continue to climb the ladder. And so he brings this job into his marriage as an idolatrous thing. And so all of a sudden, Craig and Jessica are realizing, my kids are bearing my idols. I think we as parents, we as grandparents need to understand and realize that we're guilty of this as well. We bring idols and we bear them upon our children, especially when we refuse to face that we're idol worshipers. Well, thank goodness there was an intercessor. God speaks to Moses here in verse 7. He says, go down for your people from whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. And they have made for themselves a golden calf and worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Get what is being said here. Your success is this golden image not the one true God. Your success is what you have made for yourself. Moses implores God to spare the people. He reminds God of his power, his might, his name, his reputation amongst the nations, his eternal covenant with the people. The pastor speaks to Jessica and Craig and tells them, thank goodness that you have this intercessor and Jesus Christ, this one that you can turn to. And they begin to confess their own idolatry to the Lord begin to look to God, to Jesus Christ, for deliverance. Moses comes down the mountain. <sighs> Starting in verse 15, then Moses turned and went down the mountain. He went down from the mountain, the two tablets, the testimony in his hand, Tablets were written on both sides. On the front and on the back, they were written. 
And the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Do you think these tablets were significant and important? God himself wrote upon them. God had himself instructed them. And as soon as he, and when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they were shouting, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. Moses says, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear, which had to have been heartbreaking because the only one that they were supposed to be singing and worshiping to was the one true God. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. I don't believe Moses was acting in sin here. Moses was physically, like prophets often did, did a physical depiction of what was happening spiritually. The people were violating and breaking the commandments of God. And what does Moses do? He throws down these tablets and they shatter in a very powerful picture. You think how valuable those tablets were. God himself had written them. And here Moses is shattering them. But duh, God himself had spoken the commands and Israel was in violation of them. What a powerful picture. And he took the calf that had made, they had made and he burned it with fire and ground it to a powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. You see, they were a defiled people and they were, what Moses was making them do was another powerful picture as they drank this bitter water, this gross water, demonstrating the very ugliness and grossness that had proceeded from their hearts as they had praised and worshiped the false god. Now, I don't know about you, but at this point, I'm probably hitting my knees and saying, I'm sorry, God, I repent of my idol worship, right? And I think that if you're most people in this room, you're thinking that that is a horrific punishment, they're going to repent of their sin at this point and confess. Moses says to Aaron, but Aaron, watch this. Instead of Aaron being repentant at this point, listen to Aaron's words. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. I haven't really done anything that bad. Chill out, Moses. Can you imagine and Aaron said, don't let your anger burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. You shouldn't be surprised. These are a bunch of evil jerks. Look what they've done in the wilderness. Look what they've done. You shouldn't be surprised. I can't rule these people. I can't govern these people. They scare me. They're evil. I gave in to their will because I feared for my life. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. Again, that imagery that they want to fashion and control where they're going. They do not want to be led by God. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Notice Aaron's words at this point. So I said to them, let any of you have gold, take it off. And so they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire. Now get this picture. 
got a nice molten fire going, a really hot fire. So he gathers up this gold. He throws it into the fire. And then he says, and basically what he's saying here, and then this calf jumped out. I just threw it in there and this jumped back out. Aaron is taking no responsibility. I believe we call this in today's world spin. It's how we spin the story, right? God's got a different word for it. It's called a lie. And lies pour forth from unrepentant hearts. Because when you're faced with the truth of God, you have two options. Repent or lie. It's not that bad. They made me do it. We go back to the garden, right? Notice here in verse 25, and when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose. Notice that the responsibility fell to Aaron here. For Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, to the defame. So those people who are watching and once fearful of the nation of Israel are now watching them in mockery. Look at those idiots. This word, the Hebrew language here for broke loose, carries with it the weight of someone who's basically disrobed running around. Now, whether the scholars argue whether or not they were actually physically naked, the spiritual imagery applies. These people were spiritually gross and naked before God, their grossness exposed. And they're unrepentant, running around. Craig and Jessica came home after meeting with their pastor and over the weeks and months that followed to begin to have conversation with, with their children, making their children aware that they knew what was going on, that they loved them. They confessed to their children their own idolatry, shared with them where they had fallen and not taught them about the Lord and not had pointed their hearts toward God, but pointed their heart towards worldly things and took God off the throne of their hearts through their own actions. And the youngest child sat down with his dad after Craig began to telling him this, Lord, because I worship these things, I could not relate to you. My worship of these things kept my heart from drawing close to you. And he confessed to his son, and his son began to confess to his dad all that he had been doing, the smoking and the marijuana and some of the other drugs that he tired to dive into with the crowd that he was following. And they wept together. And they drew near to each other. Jessica began to speak to their daughter. Talking to them about how when she was a child, she struggled with many things about her own self-image. And how she had done everything she could to make herself look presentable before others. And even as an adult, she still struggled with that. That she would spend so much time trying to make herself presentable for others. And that the reason the daughter struggled with her own imagery because because she struggled with it and she confessed that to her daughter and her daughter confessed that she'd been throwing up for several years and it hurt and the way that she saw the image she saw in the mirror she hated and the image that she thought for sure that the boys at school saw were hated as well and they began to weep and they began to cry and they confessed these things together and they began to look to God's word to heal from this incredible idolatry that had taken place in their home let their oldest son, when faced with his sin, 
denied everything. That's not my drugs. I was holding them for somebody. I'm fine. Look how popular I am. Everybody at school loves me. I'm just fine. Look it. I made the varsity team as a sophomore. I'm awesome at sports. I don't need your help. I don't need you. I am just fine. My academics, my grades are great. I'm in the top of my class, top 2% of my class. I'm going to beat out this other guy. I'm just fine. Look what I've, look at my trophies on the wall. I'm a success. I don't need your God, and I don't need to seek forgiveness for what I'm doing because what I'm doing is working. And Jessica and Craig's heart was broken, and they wept as their child refused to confess to God. And as the years went by, And as time kept going, their oldest son became a major problem in their home. His self-fulfilling just desires of sin and following after him, he just pursued them more and more and became interested only in himself, tearing down the youngest son, laughing at him, mocking him at school, mocking him at home, kicking him, beginning to punish him and push him. Their sister, she was a joke. He made fun of her. He called her fat. He called her ugly. He told her, and that's why boys don't like you. If you just were skinnier. And he continued to beat her down. And the parents tried to do everything they could to reach their oldest son's heart. And he reached 18, that age in which he can go off on his own. And the parents had to do the hardest thing in their lives. And they had to tell him to go. Moses calls the people together. He asked them, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. I give you the example of the family, Craig and Jessica, and what they had to do with their oldest son, so that you might begin to understand and wrestle with this text. Moses called out some people to go and to take care of the worst of the worst. And that literally meant cutting them off from the nation of Israel so that that evil would no longer be part of the family of the nation of Israel. So that the people might turn and begin to worship their God. You see, Brothers and sisters, there's something worse than physical death. It's spiritual death. We talk a lot about one of the things that we worship in this day and age is our own physical health. But there's something way more important than our own physical health. That is our spiritual health. And God is in the business. He is a holy and a righteous God. And he's in the business of ensuring your and mine spiritual health. And God will do whatever it takes to eradicate idolatry from our hearts and our lives. And we should desire that. We should want that. 
Maybe you're at this point in the story, you're wondering, is there any good news to this message this morning? Absolutely there is. And it comes in a weird way at the end of this text. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. But Moses doesn't take a sacrifice up the mountain with him. He's not taking a ram or a sheep to go sacrifice for the people. Notice how Moses is leaning here. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin, and they have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, he's asking God to forgive their sin. And he, but if not, he says, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Now, when we talk about books that are written, we often think of the book of life that we read of in Revelation that will be read. All those who are in Christ Jesus, your name is, is written in this book that will be read at the end of days. But there's another book as well, and I don't believe that's the book that's being referenced to here. The book that is being referenced to is a book that contained the name of all God's people that were in service to him. And that what, what Moses is literally saying here, let my life end early. So that you will not destroy them. My life for theirs. Notice this God's response. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Listen, Moses, everybody has sinned against God. Everybody is deserving of death. And buddy, you, your life can't make that stop. Only the true intercessor, Jesus Christ. Verse 34, but now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And then the Lord sent a plague upon the people because of them they made the calf. And notice this last statement, the one that Aaron made. We have hope this morning because of the great intercessor, Jesus Christ whose life made it possible for our idolatrous sin to be forgiven. You see, <laughs> as we discover idolatry in our life, I would love to tell you we could go home today and we're going to sit down and have a great time with God and hopefully with someone else around us and and we're going to begin to confess and repent of our idolatry, right? And that we're going to just have this once and done thing, right? But those of you who lived your Christian life for more than a day know this is not a once and a done type thing. God is going to expose different areas of idolatry in your life. Right now, it may be something big and really egregious that you're like shocked. Oh my goodness, didn't realize this. Have for me, my, idol my idolatry that I keep struggling with, I think more and more, is it's weird, the closer I draw to God, the closer I'm aware of my own um, self-serving attitude. I have a right to just sit here and watch like 10 episodes of a show, right? And do nothing, I've earned this. Do I? When God's got this plan for me to be doing and serving my family, taking care of other things, 
And so I can go home today and I can, I can confess that sin. And tomorrow God's going to say, reveal something else to me. And then reveal something else to me. And that's the beauty of it, that God through our Savior, Jesus Christ, the great intercessor, we can be continued to forgiven. And when we fail, so like today I'm confessing this to you and I mean it, I don't want to do that. I want to do better at that. But there may come a time in which I fail at that again. And in my failure, God can pick me back up because the grace of God is never ending. And this is the beautiful thing. How do we know the grace of God is never ending? Because God tells us that we can't do anything to separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Okay? And this is beautiful. And so for us, it's so freeing to say, I can confess, I can repent, I can turn to God over and over and over again. Lord, I failed and I need your grace today to pick me back up and to get back at this. And we, we, we can't quit then. And failure doesn't mean the end. Failure just means that we turn, we're recognizing, okay, I've done wrong again. I get to return to Jesus Christ and see his victory in my life. But I want to challenge you something. Oftentimes, we don't like confessing our idols to other people because we have these moments of conviction, right? Right today, you may leave out of here and have a moment of conviction. But you realize if you're going to turn to somebody else and say, I'm struggling with this in my life, you know, me turning to my wife or me turning to my life group and saying, I have this struggle in my life. If I say that three days from now and I'm no longer convicted about that, I got somebody who's going to speak that back into my life. That's scary. But it's needed. You see, we desire Living Stone to take you out of rows and put you in circles. Because right now, discipleship is not really effectively happening. Discipleship effectively happens when we get into circles with one another and we're sharing this stuff with each other and we're holding each other accountable and the word of God is being spoken into our lives. Okay? That's a scary thing. That's a hard thing. To, that's a messy thing. But we desperately need it. And let me tell you what. And it grieves my heart to, be, to, to have to say this. But let me tell you, if you're part of a Christian event, uh, lots of Christian events out there, and I'm scared to mention them because people might take offense to them. But if you're part of a Christian event wherein which no one is actually confronting each other, getting deep with each other, confessing and repenting to each other, then let me tell you something. You're wasting your time. See, God wants us in community. And true community is when we're dropping those guards and we're confessing and we're repenting each other, and that's when we start really dealing with idolatry. That's when we start really dealing with these issues in life so that hopefully we don't come to these points where people are unrepentant of idolatry, that we're able to catch this early. And by the way, if you think this is optional, go back and reread the New Testament. Because it's all over the place. That we're to live life and community with each other and so that we take what we learn here and we go out in our community and as we live life on mission together in the community, the world gets to see what true Christians should look like. And the name of God is not being defamed, but being proclaimed. God's called us to live a heart. I mean, I had an individual this week say something to me. This individual said to me, you know, Scott, um, take this however you will, 
but our church would probably go a lot quicker or might have a more rapid growth rate if you didn't preach such hard things. I don't, I don't want to come across as a jerk. That is never my desire. Because I, you got to know I am struggling with this stuff as well. I struggle with worshiping my family. I think I am married to an amazing woman, and I just want to put her on this pedestal. But every time I do, I hurt her. I want to worship my kids and, and, and their activities, and every time they do, they do something to remind me that they're not worthy of worship. I struggle with worshiping this. I struggle with worshiping my church family. And that's reflected by how much time I spend thinking about organization, administration, stuff versus the praise and the worship and the exaltation of God. And I need my life community, my life group around me to keep me grounded in the word and what matters. Brothers and sisters, the great news is we have Jesus Christ seated right next to the God the Father interceding on our behalf so we can stay in the fight. So we can put to death those idols so that we can see those idols eradicated. I like that word. Everybody say eradicated. Oh, come on, better than that. Eradicated. Eradicated. Thank you, Caden. <laughs> because let me tell you something. That's how we should feel about this. We should be like, no, that's not having a seat on the throne. No. And we're going to get mad. You're going to get angry that something's wanting to steal the joy of the Lord again from our hearts. Moses was ticked. He dropped the tablets of God on the ground. Let's get ticked about it. Let's get emotional about it. Let's get focused on it. We want to see this eradicated from our lives and so that we can pursue God with others and be that light and testimony that God wants us to be. I love you, church family, and I want to be in this with you, and I want to do this with you. And I need you, and you need each other. You need each other in this. And we want to facilitate that as a church family. We want to facilitate that from going from rows to circles so that we can, together, lift each other up and overcome these things. Please join with me in prayer. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the good news of your word. Thank you that we do not have to live in bondage to our, to our own hearts but we can be set free. In Jesus' name we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.